Hello everyone, Aaron here, coming to you from the world of podcast editing. Unfortunately, what you'll find in this episode is that I didn't realize I had the gain on my microphone turned up way too high, so there'll be points of this podcast where I am clipping quite a bit. I've done my best to fix it, but it is not perfect. If this is an issue for any reason, you can just skip to about the halfway mark and just X out all my audio entirely and skip to Rustin's bit. Uh, that being said, on with the podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to the Primordial Soup Pot. My name is Aaron Johnson. And I'm Rustin Perret. Every two weeks, Russ and I get together to discuss topics in ecology, natural history, and evolution. Absolutely. And uh, this week we're talking about extinct lineages, aren't we? Yes, I guess we should really double down on the natural history part of the podcast. I feel like we're not doubling down, we're just getting down with it. We haven't really talked about this much. We tend to talk about more modern day stuff, and I feel like that does a disservice to a lot of the really cool fossils and extinct creatures that our planet has experienced over the millennia. So I'm going to be talking about the giant ground sloths. Oh, okay. I actually thought about doing these guys. When you said extinct lineages, I didn't know if you meant an entire clade. You just went gone, wiped off the map. Because these guys still have living relatives today, of course. Okay, well, so does mine, but we'll get into that. Okay, okay, so some living relatives are okay. We're not doing a cold turkey clean slate wipe off the planet. Generally, when I was doing my research for this one, I was looking for an extinction at the genus level, because that genus is now extinct. Yeah, you're good. Okay. Let's describe these guys, the giant ground sloths. So, take a sloth. Super slow, lame, they act almost more like a plant than they do an animal. I mean, they move up to 40 yards a day, poop once a week, and sleep up to 20 hours. They literally have plants growing on them, don't they? They have a whole community that just grows in their hair. There are moths and beetles that can only be found living in sloths. They have their own fauna on them. A modern sloth can actually starve on a full stomach because of how slow their metabolism is. Okay, we all have our own fauna communities, regardless of how clean we try to be. Let's just get that out of the way. What's incredible about sloths is that they also have their own flora. Okay, you can also see their fauna on them. You can't see moths crawling around. I am bigger than a sloth, and I do not have beetles crawling around in my hair. That's true, because, you know, you keep up on your hygiene. But I have seen people that do have that kind of condition, and it's not pretty. But they don't have their own flora. That's where that's where I draw the line. That's where sloths really stand out. Okay, so take that sloth, that wimpy loser that we're all thinking of. Now put it through about 15 doses of illegal steroids, a P90X weightlifting routine, and make it about 20 feet tall. That's a ground sloth. So after all those steroids, it has like no testicles, right? Sure. Well, maybe not steroids. I don't want it to be stunted. Just this dude's jacked. This is the super soldier serum. This is Chris Evans after they popped him in the pod. Okay, so that's what that's what you should have led with, because when I think steroids, generally I think about what happened to Barry Bonds, which is that his head grew like crazy, and his testicles became raisinets. And, you know, he also had his arms grow like crazy and all of his other muscles, but 
That's like the first law of alchemy. <laughs> One thing gives, the other takes away. It's conservation of matter. That's all it is. <laughs> okay. A disclosure. The term ground sloth relates to several different species and families, not just one or two. I originally wanted to narrow it down to just one, but I found that there's just so much research, I should maybe cover the whole group. And there's definitely overlaps with them. So ground sloths were large mammals that were prevalent during the Pleistocene. This is kind of your standard ice age era. Stuff like mammoths, mastodons, smilodons, etc. This was the age of the giant mammals. Dinosaurs went extinct a long time ago, and mammals have taken over and filled all the megafauna niches that were vacant. And just to be clear, by smilodons, you're talking about saber-toothed tiger but a more scientific term because there are a lot of things that could be called saber-toothed tigers okay just making sure that people were aware of exactly what a smilodon is i didn't want to say saber-toothed tiger because there are many mammals that converge in evolution they look just like saber-toothed tigers so it's kind of a bad term gotcha gotcha just wanted to clear that up not like ground sloth is any better because there's a shitload of them <laughs> At least they're all related. Okay, so ground sloths were large herbivorous mammals. They were kind of built like a grizzly bear with a horse's head, for a lack of better terms. Like I said, you got to juice up the sloth, or you could kind of picture this in your head. The best thing to do is just to go look up a photo right now. Pause the podcast, look up the photo. Great, you're back. Okay, ground sloths. Or even better, you could also post a photo to the Twitter, and people could see it on the Twitter page. Yeah, like people check that. They will now. <laughs> These guys, some of the biggest ones, could stand about seven feet tall when they're on all fours. But there's evidence they could walk and stand bipedally with the help of a tail that kind of act like a tripod. This would make them about 20 feet tall when standing upright for the larger species. That's big. This is the size of an Asian elephant. They have massive claws that could not be retracted. So for at least some of these, they were thought they kind of awkwardly shuffled on the sides of their feet. Modern day anteaters kind of walk around the same way. Did they like knuckle walk with their claws kind of curled? I don't think they knuckle walked. I know calicotheriums did, but they're not related. I read they kind of walked on the side of their hands. For their hands, at least. For their feet, I think they could just walk normally. Okay. I gotcha. These massive claws could be up to seven inches long, which could be perfect for reaching up to grab large branches or fending off predators. It's possible that these guys were hairless in some climates. A lot of them did live in warm climates and were fairly large in size. So that would make sense if they didn't have hair. They were, it was very scraggly, think like an elephant. But there are also some in colder regions. So it's kind of debated if they had no hair or they were very shaggy like the modern day sloths. Okay, but it's possible that like it depended on their biome, right? Because these were widespread. They were very successful at their peak, but these guys were just absolute tanks overall. At their size, the biggest ones likely had no predators. Only a young or sick individual could really be taken down. And that's actually the case for most large herbivores even today. Elephants don't have a lot of animals that eat them, besides people. Even then, I don't think we eat them, we just poach them. All about the tusks, baby. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Need that keratin. I will say, I'm not going to get into this much, but there are debates over whether these guys were even herbivores. There's some speculation that they are carnivores. However, it seems like the majority of people say they were herbivores. And based on my reading of the papers, it seems like most of the arguments are putting forward that they had the potential to be carnivores, but less on direct evidence of them actually predating on other animals. 
So some people say, okay, they're big and jacked. That means they have to eat other animals because they're big and jacked, which is not a great reasoning. I mean, there's some truth to that. Like, you do need to maintain all that muscle mass. Yeah, but I think, personally, the most likely thing is they were herbivores, but there's no such thing as a pure herbivore. They're all eating meat when they get the chance. Everyone scavenge a little bit. That's true. So that can kind of make up for any shortcomings, especially if you think, like, ah, oh, their digestive tract was not advanced enough, or this dentition is off. That's what I'm going to say. Okay, I mean, what was their dental makeup like? Did they have a more... Do they have kind of like an omnivorous set of teeth? I really don't think so, but there's a large range of these guys. But it seemed like most of them were kind of just generalist grazers. Okay. If I could sum it up. There is some people that put forward the idea that they were insectivores. And there are some that said they were scavengers. But I'm going to stick with they were herbivores, but they were a little flexible with it. That's kind of the safe bet. Okay, so they're just kind of working with whatever's in the fridge. That's what I would say. That's my personal interpretation. But like I said, I'm covering a whole group. I'm covering a whole super order of animals. There's wiggle room here. Okay, I gotcha. I gotcha. But I think the most insane about these sloths is that they are extinct. The giant ground sloths. And the modern day sloths are not. They're still here. We still have them. These massive tanks of an animal, they're gone. But these modern wimpy can starve to death. With a full stomach of food, if they're just a little too cold, sloths are still here. I'm not going to focus specifically on the biology of the sloths. I'm going to focus on why the ground sloths are extinct, but why the modern sloths are still here. Yeah, that's, that's a really puzzling question. So we're going all the way back to the beginning of the sloths' evolution. All sloths trace back their origins to the superorder Xenertha. This group contains modern-day tree sloths, armadillos, and anteaters, along with the extinct groups of the ground sloths, glyptodons, and pamphitheres, and these last two were essentially just giant prehistoric armadillos. This group is often characterized for literally just being weird. That's kind of their thing. They're the oddballs of the mammals. In fact, its name comes from the ancient Greek word for foreign or alien. So they're just the weirdos. Do they have any physiological similarities, or is it just like a group of animals that no one really knows how to classify? This isn't like uh, the leftover bits. They do have some uh, shared characteristics. They all have extra articulation in their joints and unique limb bone structure. They all have complete color blindness, and they all have a notably low body temperature for a mammal. Wait, how do we know that extinct animals were colorblind? If all the descendants are it's likely that they were too. Okay. All the modern day ones in this group are completely colorblind, like full black and white everything. So that provides pretty strong evidence that this whole group was. But that just means that it's more likely that the extinct animals were colorblind, not that anything definitive. Okay, so the alternative option is that colorblindness evolved independently several times. Or they were all colorblind for this one. This is just a super order. In the grand scheme of things, this is pretty small. Man, I, I'm just trying to believe that some of these animals could appreciate color. That's all I'm saying. Because of all these characteristics, it's thought that the common ancestor was actually an insectivore that uses large claws to dig for food, which is evident in that most of its descendants today all possess large claws, along with all the extinct members of that superorder as well. And it's thought that this common ancestor spent most of his time in burrows where it would thermoregulate 
and probably had little need for color vision if it's in the dark feeding on bugs. That makes sense because a lot of animals that spend a lot of time in the dark generally focus on seeing at all rather than seeing in color. Which is kind of weird how sloths became arboreal diurnal animals, the most modern day ones. And they're still colorblind. Okay, so this order first appeared around the late Paleocene about 60 million years ago. This was, of course, following the mass extinction of dinosaurs at the end of the Cretaceous. With all the megafauna extinct, this allowed mammals to rise up, diversify, and fill up all the available niches. During this time, of course, mammals rapidly diversified. Xenarthans were no exception. They split off into two main lineages, one of which was the armadillos and their giant relatives. The other was the sloths and the anteaters. This is important. Put a pin in this. At this time, South America was essentially a giant island. It wasn't connected to anything else. There was nothing coming in and out. Think of it as like Australia, modern day. So these guys can diversify without any fear of competition. Except for what's already around them. Exactly. So the sloths made up their own group known as the folivores. And I already mentioned how they rapidly adapted to a variety of niches. You might be surprised to learn that the arboreal slow sloths of today are actually the outliers. As in, the majority of extinct sloths were the large ground sloths. Okay, that makes some kind of sense. I mean... You would think that there would be like an even split, you know? Half live in trees, half live on the ground. Two completely different lifestyles? No, the tree ones were the oddballs. I mean, yeah, but at the same time, you can only have so many lazy relatives, right? I guess. Eventually, when they all start mooching around the family reunions, you gotta start kicking one or two out. Right, Usually right. the third or fourth cousins are the first one to get the boot. <laughs> it's the third potluck where they haven't brought anything. You proceeded very quickly by weight. Who the hell are you? <laughs> <laughs> we don't even think that guy's related to us. I think he was just sitting on the bench when we all got here. <laughs> so, like I said, most of the extinct sloths were the ground sloths. The largest in size would be the megatheriums, reaching elephant size. And there are still plenty of smaller ones being closer to a large pig or cow size. Still very large. Yeah, still pretty large. And they all seem to fit generally in the large generalist herbivore, grazing on vegetation and tree foliage. But there was variety. So one group, known as the Mylodons, were thought to be omnivores. And this is the theory I kind of like, where perhaps they scavenged corpses for additional protein sources, or maybe they took advantage of things like eggs lying around. They were still largely herbivorous, feeding primarily on grasses. But there is some stable isotope evidence to back up. They did eat at least a little meat. And another group, known as the... We're going to go with Thalosnics. Yeah, we'll go with that. They were actually aquatic and grazed on seaweed and seagrasses along the close shoreline. They filled the same niche as modern-day manatees. That's awesome. Were they completely aquatic? They were. They tracked the group for a little bit, and they started off as semi-aquatic. They never really became good at swimming. They just kind of walked along the bottom. But they could just use oh. their claws to uproot all this seagrass and eat it. So I'd still say they... They uh, committed pretty well to the role. Going back to the tree sloths, the modern day ones, these guys are not only the outliers of the groups, they're not even closely related. Of the two groups of sloths alive today, not closely related. They would have diverged about 14 million years ago. But they just 
both happen to be arboreal. So today there are two main groups of sloths, the two-toed and the three-toeds. And even though they look incredibly similar, and for the long time we just assumed they were related, I mean, they're sloths, a difference in toes, okay, woo, whoop de doo In reality, this is a case of conversion evolution. They evolved from two different groups of large herbivorous ground sloths that adopted the arboreal lifestyle living in the trees. So the two main groups of sloths alive today, they look incredibly similar, actually closely related to the extinct giant ground sloths that they are to each other. So the two-fingered sloth came from the group containing the possibly omnivorous mylodon ground sloths, and the three-toed sloths came from the group containing the massive elephant-sized megatherium. Wow, okay. So now that we understand a little bit, let's get into why the ground sloths, the big guys, went extinct. The first idea when anything went extinct in South America, that's where these guys were originally, would be the Great American Biotic Exchange. Have you heard of this before? Yes. Yes. So this is a crucial moment in natural history. Everything kind of revolves around this that we know today. This is the event where volcanic and continental activity connected North and South America via what is now modern-day Panama. Until we disconnected it with the Panama Canal. Thank you, Roosevelt. You've done it again. <laughs> he fixed it. The ground sloths can rise again. <laughs> so this occurred about 3 million years ago during the Pliocene. So imagine this. You have two continents have their own unique evolutions for the past millennia. All their animals are different, and suddenly they're connected by a thin land bridge, allowing everything to migrate between the two. What do you think is going to happen? Pandemonium. Absolute pandemonium. Pandemonium, chaos, competition. This was not an equal exchange. You would think that just half dies in the north, half dies in the south. No, no, the north dominated. Animals from the colder north dominated the wildlife of the south. It's not fully understood why. There's a couple theories, and I'm guessing it was a multitude of factors. One is that the animals adapted from colder climates do better in warmer climates than vice versa. So the best way for me to describe this is if you took a grizzly bear from the north, it would do better in a tropical rainforest than a small sun bear from the tropics would do in the subarctic. Does that kind of make sense? Not really. Like, I understand why the sun bear wouldn't do well in the subarctic because it doesn't have the insulation to deal with the cold. At the same time, the grizzly bear has way too much insulation to be able to handle the tropics. So true, but a lot of the animals in the north are used to hibernation. You know, that's part of their life cycle. But during the summer, they can still live in pretty warm environments. Well, now you're just putting them in the tropics where they're living that warm environment all year round. They don't have to hibernate anymore. And you're giving them a lot of resources, too. That's one idea behind it. Like I said, there's multiple. The other aspect of this, too, though that in theory would favor a lot of the tropical species is that the tropical species deal with a lot more competition that species in colder areas generally don't because the species diversity generally is lower in colder areas than it is in the tropics. That is true. I guess that could work against it. Another thing is generally, at least for mammals, the farther north you go, the bigger the animals are and true. bigger usually dominates. Especially if you have a ton of resources available in the tropics and you get this giant mammoth coming down, he's going to have a ball. 
Okay, I guess that makes some kind of sense. I can see your argument, though. Another theory, which is a bit weaker, in my opinion, is that the Predators of the North had more specialized teeth and larger brains, and that allowed them to outcompete the indigenous Predators of the South. Do you know why species in the North had those features? So, I can tell you one thing. In South America, a lot of the Predators at this time, prior to this exchange, were marsupials, actually. Marsupials, that would be things like kangaroos, possums, koalas. Generally speaking, marsupials get beaten out by placental mammals. Placental mammals being every other mammal. We've right. already seen this happen many times. Yep. That's why you can pretty much only find them in Australia, where they're separated. And even then, things like dingoes quickly outcompeted the native Tasmanian tigers. Well, I mean, you can also find marsupials going through your trash every now and then. Yeah, there's some exceptions. Yay, possums. Regardless of why it happens, a lot of South American mammals went extinct. And to put things in perspective, 10% of mammals in North America trace their origins back to immigrants from South America, whereas half of all South American mammals trace their origins back to North. So half of everything, of all mammals alive today in South America, came from the North. Only 10% made their way up from the south. It's like the White Walkers all over again. Yeah, I don't get that. You know I didn't get that. I haven't watched it. I'm not going to watch it. We've established this. Winter is coming. Anyway, so you think this is what killed the ground sloths, right? This is the obvious answer. You're leading me up to that answer, so I'm going to say no. Yeah. No. No. They were one of the few exceptions. In fact... They expanded their territory. South America lost many of its native carnivores and ungulates, but the ground sloths did pretty good. Good for them. Usually the really big ones are the ones that made their way north. Not only did they make their way north, they did it twice. Once through the interchange, where they made their way through Central America. Some of them made their way as far north, at least as the Carolinas, but there's some species that might have made it all the way up to modern-day Canada, which is pretty far up. And then there's another group of ground sloths that actually island-hopped and established themselves in part of the Caribbean. Really? So they learned how to swim? Either they learned how to swim, or it's the raft theory, where they kind of fell on floating vegetation and made it there by chance. But these guys were pretty big, so maybe they could make the swim. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm much more inclined to believe that they swam. That raft theory barely worked out for Tom Hanks and Castaway. I don't think it would really work out for the sloths. They just grabbed an armful of volleyballs and kind of just <laughs> hope for the best. <laughs> so the ground sloths survived that extinction when a lot of their South American kin did not. In fact, this is actually true for most of the Xenarthans. Like I said, there are also giant armadillos. They actually came out okay in this, too. They also made their way north. Dang, okay. Where did it all go wrong? What do you think? You get one guess. When in doubt, what's the number one cause for extinctions? Climate change. Okay, what's the second number one <laughs> cause for extinctions? People? Yep, people. Yeah. This is the same way most of the megafauna went extinct in America. Or at least it was a contributing factor. So like I said, until fairly recently, we had very large mammals, stuff like mammoths, in North and South America. It all went downhill when people arrived. So the ground sloths all died out about 11,000 years ago, which is fairly recent, all things considered. And we have fairly strong evidence that humans killed them. 
For starters, like I said, humans killed off most of the megafauna when they crossed over the land bridge into North America and made their way down. And there's evidence of at least one site where ground sloth was butchered and eaten in Argentina about 12,000 years ago. Wow. It's a pretty strong case. Humans yeah. ate them. And now the question is, why did the smaller modern tree sloths survive this? Because they were in trees and they stayed hidden, I'm guessing, right? You know, I really couldn't find anyone that's researched this theory solely, like just why these survived but the others didn't. But I imagine there's a multitude of reasons. For one, tree sloths are known for having very small amounts of muscle proportionate to their size. I mean, they really don't move that much. They're literally just hanging on. So is it really worth the effort to climb a tree and grab one when you could just get a group of people, kill a giant sloth, and that can feed people for a much longer time? That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, they kind of survive just by being lame. You know, if you're small and out of the way and there's just giant animals walking around, no one's really going to go for you. Randy lay there like a slug. It was his only defense. <laughs> I remember in middle school, we had to wear uniforms that were for gym class. We didn't wear uniforms in school. It was purple pants and a white shirt. And conveniently, the gym was striped. So it was purple at the base and then white on top of that. And I remember my one friend did not really care for playing kickball. So he kind of just stood against the wall and he just stayed there. <laughs> And soon enough, when we were exchanging where one team is kicking and the other's, you know, out in the field, he just stayed against that wall. <laughs> I remember uh, passing him after about half an hour of this. He said, day 31, the wall have accepted me as their own. What was it? The Milford Academy and uh, Arrested Development? Children should be neither seen nor heard. <laughs> Yeah, so there's your proof that the sloth technique does work. And another yeah. thing I wanted to touch on is why the tree sloth didn't get displaced by a North American counterpart. Well, I'd say for a couple reasons. One, the tree sloths did not cross that thin land bridge because they move so slowly. <laughs> if there was a North American <laughs> counterpart that also lived in trees, ate leaves, which do not provide a lot of energy and had a super slow metabolism, they're not making their way south very fast. Yep, that's true. Also, if there were counterparts in North America, North America had a very different climate than South America. A lot more open prairies and a lot more temperate climates. So the sloths in South America can eat leaves year-round, whereas if there were some up north in the trees, they couldn't do that. So I don't think there were any counterparts to actually compete with them had they made their way down. Plus, there are glaciers that move faster than some sloths. It's also possible that the warming of the climate and the end of the Ice Age played a role. But I think humans are largely the main culprit. A good bit of evidence for this is that one group of sloths survived in modern-day Cuba till about 5,000 years ago, which means they survived the warming event, but they died when people got there. They were the last ones. Well, I mean, I guess that makes a lot of sense, given how widespread they were and how adaptable they were. Mm -hmm. And these were not huge sloths in this region. They were smaller. They were on an island. They were not the mega giants. They're still big, but think more pig or cow size than elephant. The last thing I want to mention is the legacy that these sloths left behind. So like I said, modern-day sloths are not direct descendants of the ground sloths from the Pleistocene. I gotta stress this. These are not from them. 
They diverged a long time ago. They're more like their dim-witted, scrawny second cousins than they would be their offspring. But research on modern-day sloths can still reveal a lot about of their relatives through genetics, evolution, and fossil records. We have six species of sloth alive today. One is vulnerable, one is critically endangered, and all of them are threatened by habitat loss. That's just how the rainforest be nowadays. We started off with the big sloths, and now we're going to finish off the rest, I guess. Another thing is these ground sloths actually used to be the poster child for prehistoric life. So when I say fossil or natural history, what animal do you think of? T-Rex, Velociraptor. Exactly. That's the poster child. That's the page turner nowadays. For the longest time, it was actually the ground sloths. They were discovered prior to the dinosaurs. And if you think just fossil layers, they're going to be much closer to the top. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And more likely to be preserved better because it's more recent. This fueled great debates and speculation on what the past was like. And they paved the way for dinosaurs to captivate the world. In fact, Thomas Jefferson was sent some fossils of a ground sloth species. Thomas Jefferson being, what was it, the third United States president? Number three, yep. He was sent some fossils of a ground sloth species found in a cave in Virginia. He named the species Megalonyx which is still called today, although he thought it was a lion at the time. But he was so captivated by this, it served as inspiration for the Lewis and Clark expedition across the continent. He told them specifically to keep an eye out for them because the concept of extinctions wasn't really popular at the time. What? Yes. Ground sloths help fueled Manifest Destiny. Through a couple degrees, reshaping American history. Yikes. Jefferson presented this information, which is kind of considered the first unofficial meeting of vertebrate paleontology in North America. Wow. And besides historical significance and fossils, there's one more thing they left behind. Burrows. Paleo burrows are the remains of burrows created by giant ground sloths and possibly also some of the large armadillos from the time as well. The reasoning for these burrows is not exactly known. It could have been handy for breeding, shelter, or thermoregulation in times of extreme weather. A lot of these burrows solidified and widened with time, and they're surprisingly sturdy. So much so that they were used for thousands of years by both people and animals. You can actually still see claw marks in these. There's thought to be at least 2,000 of them in South America. Some of these have developments on top of them. I mean, these are kind of everywhere. That's awesome. There's a spot in the Grand Canyon where you can actually see where a giant ground sloth fell in and tried to crawl out because of all of the claw marks and then died down there. What? Yeah. I mean, they got big claws. They made a lot of marks. And lastly, one of the most important things these sloths left behind, avocados. How? So modern day avocados are largely maintained by humans. And for good reason, they're delicious. However... You open up an avocado, what do you find inside? A large seed. Exactly. Because of the large pits, there would have to be large herbivorous animals that can eat and disperse the seed whole. Because I do believe the seed is poisonous if you start eating it. There is nothing alive in South America today that can do that. Nothing can eat it whole, at least. Except for those ground sloths that lived thousands of years ago. Exactly. It's thought that the avocados co-evolved alongside the ground sloths. This could be several of the megafauna, but ground sloths were very prevalent here, so they might have been one of the main drivers. Okay, so if they co-evolved, then how did the avocados stick around after the sloths died out? People liked eating them. 
there's evidence of people eating them for thousands of years. Okay, so people kind of took over then. Yep. We took the sloths, but we kept their avocados. It wasn't even like we were eating the sloths. It was just a war for the avocados. <laughs> That's what we wanted in the end. I mean, there's evidence of like really ancient people eating av avocados, I believe. Yes, the ancient guacamole war between the humans and the sloths. <laughs> we can't both have it. There can only be one. And there's evidence of other plants like papayas, honey locust trees, and caramoya. I don't know what the last one was. These are all thought to have co-evolved with megafauna that no longer exists today as well. These all would have made a perfect snack. They'd be eaten in one bite for the big guys. But for us, I mean, eat that thing whole. Or not eat it whole. It's like uh, you put it in your hands. You chew it around a little bit. It's, a, it's fun. Kids love it. That is my bit about ground sloths. I didn't cover much on their biology simply because a lot of it's still debated and they're very diverse. I could have just covered every group, but I thought I'd talk about why they're gone, why we got the modern day sloths, and what they left behind. Gotcha. I will say the one thing with that North American, South American species swap that you were talking about, mm -hmm. there is another story tied into that that I want to get into at some point. That's coming eventually. Just know that we'll be talking about this event again in the future. The best way for me to start talking about my extinct lineage that I've chosen to talk about is to show you an image and see what you think of it. This image is the fossil that we see now. So for those of you listening at home, I'll have Aaron post the picture to Twitter, or you can just look it up after I'm done. Either way. So Aaron, I sent you an email earlier. Open it up. I am opening my email. Email from Russ and Prey, mysterious pick. Don't look yet in all caps. And I am seeing what appears to be a spiral. Yes. So what do you think that is? If you had to guess, what prehistoric? If I had to guess, based on the spiral, I would say easily, hands down, it's a nautilus. Or some sort of snail. You would be wrong. What if I told you that that belonged to a prehistoric fish that looked like a shark? Did it kind of swim around like a helicopter? Or did it like... <laughs> oh you know what i bet it just drilled down into the earth <laughs> either way it's really unlikely that you would have guessed that right now if i just dug this up in my backyard no way if i was the first person to find it i'd have no clue what it was yes absolutely and you'd be totally right to think that because this is a fossil that has been confusing paleontologists for decades, if not centuries at this point. So the reason I introduced this topic like that is because I want to start by discussing how this fossil was discovered and how this species was first thought of. This fossil belongs to a lineage or a genus known as Helicoprion. The first Helicoprion fossil was discovered in the 1880s by Andre Karpinski, who presumably was just as confused as you were, Aaron. He didn't even know for sure exactly what he's, he was looking at. In fact, the first fossil he analyzed wasn't even as clearly defined as the one I sent you. Just like you, he thought it was some kind of large Nautilus-like mollusk or snail or something like that, right? However, he eventually found out that the ridges in the fossil were actually teeth. They weren't ridges in a shell. And given the fact that the sediment where it was found was once the bottom of a shallow sea and that no other part of the animal was fossilized nearby, it was a reasonable guess that the crazy tooth whorl, as fossils of this type would come to be named, belonged to something like a shark. Safe bet they leave a lot of teeth behind. Yes and no. We'll get into that. As I've discussed before in the Megalodon episode, shark skeletons are made of cartilage. 
so they don't fossilize well, and we usually only find their teeth as fossils. The same holds true for Helicoprion. Now that we know it belongs to a predatory fish of some kind, where exactly does it go? So knowing that this is from a fish or something like a shark, where do you think it goes on the shark? I'm betting it goes right along the back, and I'm sticking with my theory that it kind of just <laughs> spun around a lot, and that's how it got around. <laughs> I'm going to say that tooth buzzsaw-looking thing, that's just the entire body. That's just how they moved. We already have sawfish. Might as well get a buzzsawfish. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, your hypothesis isn't that much different from many of the others that have been theorized over the years, because... Pretty much every part of a fish has been hypothesized as a location for the tooth whorl. The only thing that people have been able to agree on is that the tooth whorl was positioned vertically somewhere on Helicoprion's body. So the teeth faced up and down. They weren't side to side, right? Some have thought that it went on the tail, kind of like modern thresher sharks, which also have elongated tails that they use to slap or stun prey. That was once a theory that Helicoprion used this tooth whorl on its tail to kind of like smack or injure prey of some kind. Others thought that it was part of the dorsal fin. Personally, I have no idea why you would want or need this thing on your back, but that was another hypothesis. However, it's made of teeth, so the most logical place to put it is somewhere near the mouth. I was going to say, if they were calling it a tooth whorl at the time, you would think they just all put it in the mouth. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't be calling it a tooth whirl if it was on right. the fins. But when you think about how bizarre this fossil looks, you get all kinds of crazy ideas about how it's used and where it goes, right? That's like saying well, you find a dead body inside all the Sheka's dental records and you start looking at his feet. Okay, but if you find this fossil, right, and you know that it's made of teeth or something like teeth, but I mean, lots of different animals have structures like teeth all over their body they got spines and spikes and all kinds of weird places right hey you don't know it could be anywhere on the body but people generally kind of more gravitated to the idea that it was positioned somewhere in and around the mouth karpinski the guy who discovered the fossil his original idea was that the tooth whorl stuck out from the snout of helicoprion kind of like some bizarre serrated elephant trunk <laughs> i like or that like one. some kind of nightmarish dr seuss character still others thought that it belonged on the lower jaw in kind of like a mirror image of karpinski's hypothesis the lower jaw was just kind of like in this idea helicoprion just looked perpetually shocked like just swam around with its mouth wide open with its jaw kind of curled up and under its chin really really bizarre looking stuff with this hypothesis the idea was that helicoprion could use the tooth whorl as kind of a whip to capture or injure prey kind of like the tail hypothesis but instead under its mouth yeah With their mouth oh, yeah, under like, its mouth yeah so you essentially he's just reaching out and giving them a smooch yeah kind of like a really deadly goatee you know <laughs> you just make it serrated you, there were all kinds of crazy ideas surrounding this fossil because no one knew what the hell to make of it however the issue with this whip hypothesis was that it became difficult to prove because there were never any elongated tooth whorls found which would indicate this kind of behavior. You know, the tooth whorls were always found curled up. They weren't found extended. The, if Helicoprion was using the tooth whorl to slap out at prey or something like that, you'd find it stuck in that position every now and then, but we never did, and we still never do. 
Okay, well then the answer's obvious. They're projectiles. <laughs> they kind of launch this whole thing out like a saw blade. Just like ninja throwing stars just being flung out of the yeah. mouth. Their mouth is kind of like a toaster. And they got like they got two, so they have a backup. And, you know, when they get stressed out, you press the plungers and you can fire one. It's the double barrel saw blade shotgun. Anyway, another theory that people had was that the tooth whirl went somewhere inside the mouth. But again, this too had problems because it's so alien when compared with the kind of dental arrangements that we see in just about every other species on the planet, especially in fish. These hypotheses all had the tooth world in the direct center of the mouth, just one row of straight teeth right down the center of the mouth. Really, really bizarre looking. Eventually, we started learning more and more information about this fossil because at one point, a tooth whirl was discovered in Idaho with some additional information because it had fossilized jaw parts attached to the whirl, right? So now we have some of their mouth parts and we can start to understand more about how it's put together. This fossil was found, like I said, in Idaho, and it turns out Idaho is one of the best places to find helicoprion fossils. Oh, good for you, Idaho. I know, right? The issue with this is that this fossil was found sometime in the 1960s, it just kind of sat around for 50 years before it was analyzed with a CT scan. This allowed paleontologists to get a more complete picture of what the mouth of Helicoprion looked like. But, you know, it had to sit around for a while. They couldn't just do that. Couldn't start looking at it right away. Had to wait for some advances in technology. Right, true. The fossil also had to ripen, you know? It really helps if you put it in a paper bag. <laughs> right. Stick it in the microwave for a little bit. Let it warm up. Anyway, the reconstruction from the CT scan showed the tooth whorl on the bottom jaw inside the mouth. The teeth on the inside of the whorl are the ones that weren't visible from the outside of Helicoprion's jaw. Kind of like how x-rays of your wisdom teeth when you're a teenager show the wisdom teeth just behind your molars. You know, sitting there ready to cause all kinds of havoc on your jaw. Basically what the teeth on the inside of the tooth whorl are. They're just ready to cycle out. Oh, they're the baby teeth. Exactly. They're ready to cycle out to be visible. They're not mature yet. Essentially, this means that Helicoprion had a conveyor belt of teeth just running down the middle of its mouth. It is thought that the front teeth captured and brought in prey, the middle ones cut it up, and the rear ones then guided the food down to the throat. The rear ones just cheered them on. Exactly. By that point, half the work's done. Two-thirds, actually. Two-thirds of the work is done. <laughs> then the question becomes, with teeth that are this bizarre, what exactly was it eating? Well, some think that Helicoprion ate soft-bodied prey like squid. Other models contradicted this by finding that such prey would get caught in the teeth near the back of the mouth. That's a big issue, so maybe they didn't eat squid. So they got saw teeth. I'm betting if we found a large amount of fossilized 2x4s, that kind of solves the whole conundrum. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. And, you know, maybe a radio nearby, too. Still, other hypotheses suggested that the bizarre tooth structure was used to help crack open shelled organisms. You know, like snails or nautiluses or something like that. The issue with this is that the teeth that have been found lack the kind of wear and tear that would probably result from this kind of usage. So who knows? What's very frustrating is that we don't know very much about how Helicoprion lived because we've only found its teeth and that one imprint of its jaw. We haven't found any other parts of its skeleton aside from, you know, just that one piece. 
This makes it difficult to understand how this genus would have captured prey or lived in general. We only have its teeth. I mean, Aaron, if somebody looked at your teeth, how much would they really know about your life? A lot of peanuts. Right, but they, they'd call you Peanut Man, and that's not that's not the summation of your existence, you know? Homo Peanuts, they called him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, a point that I do want to make here is that when I talked about Megalodon, I talked a lot about how much we knew about what they ate, how they behaved, that sort of thing. Even though we really only have found Megalodon teeth, too, the difference is that we've found scars of Megalodon teeth in lots of other places. We find imprints of their teeth on whales and dolphins from the time, so we know what they were eating. We don't really find imprints of helicoprion teeth, at least not that I'm aware of. It's far more difficult to determine what they were eating and what kinds of prey they were going after generally. But in terms of their size, helicoprion was pretty large, about 10 to 15 feet long, a little bit bigger than a dolphin. Yeah, nothing to scoff at. No, not at all. A further note about why helicoprion is so remarkable is the time period when it lived, from about 290 million years ago to about 250 million years ago. So for starters, that's 40 million years. It's a pretty long time. It means that they were very successful. But they lived in the Permian period right up and through the transition to the Triassic. So for those of us who aren't paleontologists, I'm assuming that's pretty much everybody, myself included. This is remarkable because it meant that Helicoprion survived the largest mass extinction event in the planet's history, colloquially known as the Great Dying. So that means whatever they were doing, they were good at it. Very good, yes. And then that also means whatever they were eating also had to survive that, I'm assuming, unless they were generalist predators. It's, I think it's more likely that they managed to adapt really well to changing conditions. But that tooth whirl, that's such a commitment. Once you got that, you can't just lose that. No, no, but that means that the tooth whirl was very effective. But just to kind of give an idea of how incredible it is that Helicoprion survived the Great Dying, the Great Dying killed about 95% of all life in the oceans and about two-thirds of all life on land. To put this in perspective, the extinction event that killed the dinosaurs you know, the one with a giant asteroid that Hollywood's always scaring us with, only killed about 70% of all life on Earth. So this is an, a far worse mass, mass extinction event than that one is. It is thought that this event was caused by extreme volcanic activity, which raised global temperatures over time. In the oceans, this was so severe because the higher temperatures meant that organisms had higher metabolisms. Simultaneously, the oceans could not hold as much oxygen. Mm, that's really bad for big animals. Absolutely. So the end result is that a lot of life in the oceans just suffocated and died. Oh, what a way to go. Yep, but not Helicoprion. These tough, swirly-toothed fish survived for a couple million years after the Great Dying ended. Because we don't really know much about their life, or how they lived, or bred, or anything like that, it's really hard to be sure exactly what caused their extinction. We don't know what their ecological niche was, so we don't know how that could have disappeared or been disrupted uh, in the same way that we do about megalodon we know that megalodon preyed on, on certain types of whales and dolphins and things like that and that those were phased out with changing climates helicoprion we don't really know it already survived one incredibly large extinction event it's kind of odd that it couldn't survive just time itself yeah I was know. there another one at the 250 mark no so that's the thing 
the mass extinction event that transitioned in the Triassic, the Great Dying, that occurred about at 252 million years ago. Helicoprion went extinct 250 million years ago, so it only survived for a couple million years after the Great Dying. It lived the vast majority of its life in the Permian period before the Triassic. Okay, so it cleared the last hurdle, but then it kind of just lied down to take a nap. So it's a bit odd for them to survive this mass extinction event and then just kind of die out a little while later. Kind of like surviving a, a White Walker attack, only to fall down the stairs and die right after that. I'm assuming that happened to someone. Was it the kid in the wheelchair? <laughs> no, the kid in the wheelchair survived the, sh the whole show, actually. Oh, really? Yep, made it all the way through. Good for it. I saw the first episode. He's the one that gets chucked out the window, right? Yep. Turns out when you got Professor X-like powers, your odds of survival go go way up. Anyway, yeah, that's Helicoprion. So what do you think they ate? So... I'm inclined to believe that they subsisted off of more soft-bodied prey. Maybe not squid, but possibly like fish or something like that. Smaller fish. That's my idea, just because I can't really square the idea of... Using it like a nutcracker. Yeah, and, and like nutcrackers have scrapes and stuff on them over time, right? If they're cracking open something that's that hard, it just seems more likely that they ate something more soft-bodied mm. when the teeth that we find are don't have those kinds of scars on them. I think it's far more likely that they ate something like that and that the tooth whirl, especially the front teeth, were very helpful in terms of catching the prey and making sure they stayed in the mouth and didn't escape. It's really hard to know or to really give an educated guess even because of how little we know about their skeletal structure. Yeah, that's true. I'm at least familiar with these, but I haven't done any reading on them. In fact... I had a uh, old book of prehistoric life as a kid from the early 2000s. And in that book, they depict them with the super long lip that's curled underneath them. Yeah. Which I'm guessing it was a recent discovery where they don't have it like that. Because yeah. I know the modern depictions, it's just like in the mouth and you don't see all those teeth. You just see the outer ones. Yeah, the depiction of the tooth whirl is kind of like a death goatee existed well into the 21st century. The The study that I'm talking about that used the CT scan was published in 2013. Oh, yeah, that's pretty recent. So that's when we kind of definitively knew how the jaw was structured and oriented. I do like the older version better. It was much more fun. <laughs> it looks yeah. silly. The older version was far more bizarre. The more modern depictions look kind of dopey, if you ask me. I wonder... I feel like this is going to be a cop-out for anything fossil-related if the tooth whirl was just sexual selection. Maybe, but... Like I said, that's the cop-out, because you could essentially say anything. Right, but we don't really see extreme sexual selection among large predatory fish the same way we do, say, among birds. And even among birds, extreme sexual selection really only presents itself under situations where predation and things like that aren't factors, right? So if you think about Helicoprion in the same role as a bird that has, that is either at the top of the food chain or somewhere near the top of the food chain, those birds don't typically undergo sexual selection that is as extreme because they have to be still be effective predators, right? You don't necessarily see like hawks and eagles with the same kind of phenotypes 
that you do in other species where sexual selection is more pronounced like birds of paradise yeah right yeah i could see that like i said it's kind of a cop-out you could essentially say anything is you don't really see as much sexual selection in fish as you do in with birds generally i'm not saying it doesn't exist because it absolutely does i, I really think that the tooth world was much more of a functional evolution than it was a flashy evolution yeah i've only heard that it was used to eat squid like I said, I have not really read up on these. I just saw the funky pictures as a kid, and then I saw the new one and got a little disappointed. Like I said, this is a, a fossil which has confounded paleontologists for decades, and still does to this day because of how little we know about how they fed. How different this fossil is than anything else we've found in modern day fish or even in prehistoric fish. And I guess the sad reality is we may never know anymore because... The amount of fossils is finite. There's a limit to how many fossils there are. That's true, but there's also the possibility that somewhere in Idaho, buried amongst the potatoes, is another helicoprion fossil with more information for us. Yeah, maybe we got one fully intact. Fingers crossed. Yeah, exactly. You never know. We could find something like that one of these days. We've all seen the like clickbait news articles where someone pulls out a carrot and the wedding ring they lost like the year before is wedged in the carrot well imagine we pull out a potato and they just pull out an entire helicoprion right behind it <sighs> anyway but yeah that's helicoprion okay really cool definitely an animal that benefits from a photo absolutely i really wanted to make sure that you saw a picture of the fossil just so you know it really added a lot to this whole piece i think and so for anyone listening check out the twitter page I'm, I'm going to make sure that Aaron puts a picture of the fossil up so you can get an idea of just exactly how crazy this thing looks. Oh, yeah. I'll toss something up there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, now the question remains, what do we do next time? Hmm. Well, I did get two suggestions. All right. What do you got? One of these requests was for pick an animal that is a college mascot and argue which one is the best. All right, so that's one idea, and the other one was a request for the deep sea. Ooh, let's do that. Yeah, uh, that's where I was leaning. They know there's cool stuff down there, wanted us to pick one of our favorites. We can do the college mascots closer to the March Madness tournament. All right, now that we've decided on that, you want to take us out? I'll take us out. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a like or review on your podcast app of choice. If you have requests for a future episode, like the one we're doing now, you can reach us at souppotpodcast at twitter.com, or you can email us at theprimordialsouppot at gmail.com. Absolutely. And until next time, I'm Rustin Perret. And I'm Aaron Johnson. See ya. Bye.